Hello! I am Randy Andrews, and today Erica Christie and I will examine two for this episode. Yes, count them two Don Bluth films that mean something to us in a big way. Uh, we'll discuss the cast, the background animation, and of course, the soundtracks. It's all today on Soundtrack Alley, and it starts now. Erica, it's great to have you on the show. Let's get into this Don Bluth Fest, started by discussing The Secret of Nim from 1982. What are your thoughts on this animated film? Uh, I saw it when I was a little kid, and I thought it was a lot of fun. Um, I know other kids were scared by it and thought it was kind of creepy, but I enjoyed it, and as an adult, I still enjoy it. Agreed. <laughs> I uh, I am in that category as well because when i saw it as a kid i really enjoyed it i enjoyed the animation i enjoyed the darkness of it i enjoyed the characters that were like these larger than life kind of evil looking characters like the owl and nicodemus mm -hmm. in the film it just it it i don't know it made an impression on me but in a good way like i i really enjoyed it <laughs> I mean, you know, we, we know that the film is based upon a novel on called uh, Mrs. Frisbee and the Rats of Nim. Uh, but one thing is that they changed Mrs. Frisbee to Mrs. Brisbee in the film to avoid legal entanglements from the wham company, which is the making of Frisbee. And as silly as that sounds, that is a legitimate thing that you kind of have to do sometimes. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So totally understandable. Um, not quite understanding why they had to change that name, but it works. And uh, one thing that I really appreciate was like Don Bluth, John Pomeroy, and uh, Gary Goldman all left Disney in order to pursue this project, uh, which had originally been rejected by the employer as being too dark. Mm -hmm. And uh, yet, they were the ones that streamlined this type of animation and made it better and uh, created other things that no one else were, were doing. All right, so at the time of the release... It was the largest non-Disney animated film. And that's saying yeah. something. Because Disney was pretty much dominating the animation world in the early 1980s. Mm. And then, like, the there were little nods, though, to different Disney things 
that these animators were able to do, such as the dragonfly that Mr. Ages chases away at the beginning of the film, and it's actually Evan Rude from The Rescuers. And it was one of the last films that Don Bluth worked on before leaving Disney. <laughs> yeah, so. animators always seem to get a kick in putting little Easter eggs in different places. So, I mean, Pixar has kind of taken it to like a whole new art form. But, I mean, yeah, they've been doing that sort of yeah. thing for decades. Yeah, which is really, really cool. Also, for character voices, for actor voices, uh, this was Will Wheaton's uh, film debut. People might know him from Star Trek, The Next Generation, or The Big Bang Theory. And then also, Shannon Doherty. Uh, this was her film debut um, as a voice. And she, you know, of course, appeared on 90210 and Charmed and other <laughs> projects that I don't know that yep. she did. This was also Jerry Goldsmith's first music score for an animated film. Now, I didn't realize that, and he later said that it was among his very personal favorites. He uh, was instrumental even to introducing the film to Steven Spielberg, who went to work with Don Bluth on An American Tale, which, hint, hint, we are covering <laughs> next. Um, according to Bluth, uh, Gary Goldman, in their DVD commentary, Goldsmith so loved the film that he volunteered an extra three weeks to polish and even refine the score, even though he was not contractually obligated to do so. Now that goes above and beyond for a film Yeah, composer. I mean, him saying that it was one of his most personal favorites, um, obviously, even while he was making it, it was something that moved him so much that he was willing to make sure that it came out you know, as close to how he wanted it as possible that he's going to donate his own time to it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it just, it raises the bar for a lot of film composers to actually go the extra mile to actually create something uh, iconic. Gary Goldman, he had stated that originally they hoped the film would be PG due to the intense scenes and the maturity of the subject matter, especially with it having the word damn in it. Um, they were actually surprised when the rating was given a G rating, yeah. which is very yeah, surprising. Yeah, I was surprised by that too. I didn't realize that. I mean, as a little kid, I assumed, again, I didn't know what rating systems was, but I mean, I could tell that it was a little, little edgier, a little bit darker than other kids' movies, and I would never, ever have guessed that it actually got a G. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And... I found that it was budgeted at $6.5 million, and <laughs> Gary Goldman resorted to mortgaging homes in order to raise an extra $700,000 to complete the film. In spite of the difficulties, the film still cost under $7 million, and roughly half of what Disney had been spending at the time on its animated features, which is really, it's like, sock it to you, Disney. <laughs> you know, it's yeah. like, it's like, ha ha, yeah. look what Half we did. the money, they created a whole bunch of things to be able to make the film, and then it still comes out better than at least some of the Disney movies. So, yeah, that was quite the socket to them. <laughs> mm -hmm. 
<laughs> yeah, and then I really liked how, you know, I know this is jumping to the end of the film, but like the staging of the climatic sword fight uh, at the end between, um, let's see, what is it? Justin and Jenner um, was largely taken from Errol Flynn and Basil Rathbone's duel in The Adventures of Robin Hood. And even some of the choreography where the villain gets stabbed in the stomach was actually copied by the animators, which is kind of mm. cool. Yeah, I mean, they knew that cinematically that fight scene worked. So, I mean, hey, why not, you know, mimic at least some of it in the animated movie? Yeah, it's, it's not a bad yeah. idea. <laughs> it made it a more dramatic uh, mm. action scene. I liked. And then... Have you ever wondered what NIM actually stands for? I didn't have to wonder because when I was a little kid, I actually saw <laughs> it in the movie. Like, I saw it on screen, and I was like, that's what NIM is. So, yeah, I did actually know what it was. Yeah. That it's the National Institute for Mental mm. Health. And yet they were using their mental health for evil. Yes. <laughs> well, sort of. To make, to make rats mm. smarter. Uh, also... The movie heralded a return to using a multi-plane camera for scenes requiring depth, such as uh, Nicodemus's hologram and the opening sequences with the aid of even backlit animation, like the wise old rat beckons the magic vapors from an inkwell to grace the pages of the ancient book with uh, the gold lettering. Now, you know something a bit about camera... Uh, scenes and camera <laughs> I angles. Do, I do. Do you do you know more about this multi-plane? Uh, I actually do. It, it's been it's been a while since I've studied this sort of thing, but I actually do know what they're talking about. It's it, think of like window panes, like panes of glass, and you have multiple layers on them. And in the way that they had done it, like films had done it previously, was you would have multiple layers. The foreground is always your character. The middle ground is going to be like, you know, the grass and the rocks and the trees. And then you might have multiple backgrounds. The very, very back is going to be, you know, the sky and the horizon. In front of that would be like mountains. In front of that would be like a city that's off in a distance so they would actually film they would take photographs of each individual set mm -hmm. of like glass panes and each set of glass panes would have whatever the image was and it was usually just the top image the character who's moving and all the other panes of glass would stay the same um, so, but I think they had slowly been okay. moving away from doing that style. And I believe what they're saying mm -hmm. is that, uh, they were kind of going back to that. Like they kind of wanted, I don't know if I should say old, old school, but they kind of wanted like a throwback look to the movie. And so they had gone back to doing yeah. that process. Yeah. And did you get how, how this movie kind of reminded you of another movie in a way that we had already reviewed? Like another I mean, animated I mean, film? the darkness kept throwing me back to like Black Cauldron. Um, yeah. yeah, is that where you were? Is that where you that's were going? What I thought of. <laughs> yep, that's where I was going. <laughs> because it it's so true. It's like there's a lot of darkness to it, and yes, there were there was one singing song in this film, but there was none in you know, of course, Black mm -hmm. Cauldron. So, uh, but yeah, these different uh, uses that they used, and then. They used, uh, like, split exposures, um, diffusion in conjunction, 
conjunction with the split exposures to create a reflection. And it was just really interesting that they were using these techniques to make an animated mm-hmm, feature. Yeah, and all of those things are so hard to do on film. So, I mean, they just really did a wonderful job because it is just so difficult to do all of that stuff, optical effects, the split exposure you just said, like that's just really difficult to do. So the fact that they accomplished it and that it was for an animated movie um, definitely makes this movie look different than most other animated movies. Yeah, and then I always think about the um, the colors for mm-hmm. the film. Like, like in this movie especially, it has a lot of grayer, browner tones to a lot of characters in the film. But when you had color, when you had the red, when you had the green, it really stood out. Mm-hmm. Like the, the red stone or the eyes of the owl and um, even Nicodemus's whole inner room or inner sanctum, I guess. (laughs) You know, there was a lot of Mm. color to those scenes and it showed maybe that these are important points to remember uh, for Mm. the movie. Yeah, it it kind of reminded me a little bit of like how Watchmen went with a completely different color scheme from most comics, just purposefully to make like a visual statement and that's kind of what I felt like watching them like everything was kind of off color and not quite what you were expecting but then as you said suddenly there'd be a flash of red and like that would strike more you know vibrantly because they hadn't been using such bright pure colors prior to that yeah yeah I I was you know just kind of in awe and then another thing in regard to the effects uh, the water effects, the fire, uh, the wa- the uh, sparks, you know, these, these pseudo-hologram things. It just, it really made the film stand out to be at a level higher than anything that even Disney was doing at the time. And really, I think Don Bluth had a way about him to just say, okay, this is what we're doing. This is the level that I want this at, and I want to do more things, like having these two identical cameras to uh, create the other ideas for like a different process, and having one of the cameras featured that were built for Don Bluth to even know that it wasn't for a traditional animation stand and it was capable of shooting like the backlit art and in an anima anamorphic format mm. and i just i really liked the way that uh he just did his animation and it it just stood out far higher and so i i really mm. appreciated it <laughs> another thing Mrs. Brisby was supposed to encounter a female rat uh, named Isabella that she was to meet at a library, and she was supposed to explain the origins of the rats, and she also served as a nurse and was Justin's girlfriend, and she was ultimately cut from the film because they filled in those gaps later by having Nicodemus explain the origin of the rats, and they didn't need a nurse. They had... Mrs. Brisby really servicing her son and and 
Justin didn't need a girlfriend. <laughs> so, <laughs> and oh, and this is the first of five films directed by Don Bluth that featured Dom DeLuise. Mm. Um, what were the other four? Uh, well, obviously, American Tale one. Did did Bluth do the number two as well? He did. So yeah. so the two yeah. American Tales. Um, well, I feel like I just read this recently, and now I'm trying to remember what it was. Uh-uh. I don't have uh-uh. the list. Uh-uh. Just saying. <laughs> I feel like I should know what the other two are, but I'm I'm drawing a slight okay. blank. Well, I think I think one of them is All Dogs Go to Heaven. Which yes, we'll cover yes, in yes. part two. Because so. Dom did what, like Scratchy or something like that. I want to say whatever, whatever uh, the like did... friend is. Yes, I, I, the yeah. uh, Dachshund. I want to say Scratchy, yep. but I could be wrong yeah. about that. Um, yeah, yeah, and I'm not really sure what the other film is. I'll have to look it up right. at some point. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe in part two right. we'll figure it out. <laughs> so, <laughs> but anyway, this film greatly deviates from the novel and. The novel doesn't have any supernatural elements. Nicodemus isn't magical or elderly, but he's merely intellectual. Um, Jenner's not a villainous character, but the leader of the defectors uh, from the plan, and who is believed killed during an unsuccessful raid on the hardware store. And then the move of Mrs. Brisby's home is accomplished by the rats without incident or magic. <laughs> that was interesting. And then um with being a Jerry Goldsmith fan, I really like how it really opens with like a choir and almost the second fiddle uh that plays in the background, but then that music stands alone and and it really impresses on me the quality of how uh he even sprinkles this little magic throughout the score to make it more uh fantastical and you have those woodwind moments and the the choir support superb and every it even reminds me and this is weird but i think it even reminds me of conan (laughs) in a way uh the the theme is is gorgeous and i just i really like how uh the score really stands out to note that it's not cartoonish mm-hmm. in nature. It's more of a darker piece mm-hmm. of music. And he uses a lot of harp, and a lot of filmmakers yeah. and musicians will use a harp as kind of a magical thing as well. So having that in there is just kind of another layer of you kind of feeling like you're not in the real world anymore. Yeah, exactly. So today, I'd like to play a couple of suites of music of The Secret of Nim. Uh, the cues that I've included are the main title, the century reel, the story of Nim, then Escape from Nim, and In Disguise. Now, I really love these cues presented in the score. Some of the fantastical elements I've pointed are highlighted here, uh, with even the thoughts on Nicodemus and the sweeping music. It gives us even a grand hero theme, in a way, for Mrs. Brisby. Uh, Erica, what are your thoughts uh, on it? Yeah, I, re- I especially like the first two of the cues. Um, 
as I just mentioned, all the harp, uh, the harp was just beautiful every time you could hear it. Um, the choir, which you also mentioned, and the thing that I liked about the choir is that they were never singing like lyrics. They, it was just always like mm-hmm. open tones, and he was almost using the choir like just as like another section of instruments. And so sometimes they would be with the violins, and sometimes they'd be with, you know, the reed instruments. And they would just kind of come in and out, and it just kind of again it's that sort of otherworldly thing where you have people singing but they're not saying anything and they're just sort of like adding yeah. to the creepy mood <laughs> so and i think i think we talked about that before <laughs> a you little know? bit yeah and then for the second track the century reel um again when the harp came in on this one it started to occur to me that the harp had been in both of those first two tracks but i really only heard it uh during like moments of quiet and like you know when people were taking a breath like in between passages and it was and I was thinking Mm. like wow how did I miss the harp like it was there the whole time but it's so (laughs) sweet and so soft that unless you're like really listening for it you tend to miss it and I knew that I had missed it and decided that I needed to pay (laughs) far more attention to what I was listening to because I was enjoying it so much (laughs) yeah well I was doing that last (laughs) night too I was I was listening to the score as I was uh, figuring out a few more notes and uh, yeah I, I I appreciate that too. So why don't we go ahead and play those cues?
Alright, so the next brief suite I have is for for the film is Step Inside My House, Moving Day, The House Raising, and finally Flying High and End Credits. Um, I also love these cues and how it proves like what the Nim rats are capable of and why Mrs. Brisby is so important. Um, what are your thoughts, Erica? Uh, yeah, the first few were, you know, dark and moody. Um, again, still lots of voices, uh, lots of, you know, changing melodies moving in and out. So they just really kind of let you get lost in the atmosphere of what's happening. Um, and then for the end credits, uh, I thought they were beautiful and fun, uh, which mm-hmm. you didn't get a lot of fun in The Secret of Nim, So it was kind of nice at the end credits <laughs> to kind of get a little bit of like, OK, you know, lightheartedness. They, they, yeah, they yeah. made it through like everything is going to be a little bit better. And there's all these different, you know, melodies and themes going on. But you never really get lost in the song. Like there's kind of a through line where you can kind of you're following the music and you stay on track. But you did get to hear little elements and themes from throughout the whole movie. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I I appreciated that too. And, I mean, just going back to Step Inside My House, I really appreciate the owl. I mean, <laughs> the great owl, he just... He is one of those characters in the film that I will watch over and over mm-hmm. again because it's just so majestic and... He looks dark and mm. brooding, but 
He's a very wise old owl. Did you want to have a pet owl when you were young? No, no. no. All right. But yeah, parents wouldn't allow it. <laughs> <laughs> Had to settle for a dog, so that works. Uh, so why don't we go ahead and play those cues?
Alright, so the second half of our show, we are coming into An American Tale that was directed by Steven Spielberg. Erica, what are your initial thoughts on An American Tale? Uh, I loved it as a little kid. It's one of those shows and movies that I would put on in VHS and just play like over and over and over, especially if nobody else is around so they wouldn't get annoyed at me singing all the songs. Um, but yeah, I just, I absolutely loved it. I loved it for the music. And then gradually mm-hmm. I, I started liking, you know, the different characters and like the voice actors and the directing. And that stuff kind of came secondary to me. It was, it was the music and the score um, and the singing that kind of drew me in to begin with. Yeah, uh, I almost felt, that this was one of the saddest movies that were from Don <laughs> Bluth um, in his repertoire of films. I really like it. The animation style is fantastic. But I still get frustrated with how close Fievel would be to his family with finding them. That they were just like, just across the way or, you know, just over here. And he misses them. And it's like, ah! That's good script writing. That's good script writing. (laughs) Because it's raising the tension. (laughs) Yeah. It's very uh, high high, uh, stress level. But another thing I found interesting is that Fievel is the name of Steven Spielberg's grandfather. Which is kind of cool. So maybe Steven Spielberg had a hand in that. Um, the scene in which Fievel presses up against the window to look in the classroom filled with American school mice is based on a story that Steven Spielberg remembered about his grandfather, who told him that Jews were only able to listen to school lessons through open windows while sitting outside in the snow. That's pretty harsh. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so it may have been a, uh area that did not like Jews. Mm-hmm. So, you know, unfortunately, that same thing still happens with other groups of people. So, mm-hmm. one of these days, yeah. us humans need to start learning our lessons. Yeah, exactly. And uh, so, this song won't be covered in today's episode, but in the third verse of No Cats in America, an Irish mouse sings that a cat killed his true love. And left nothing but her tail behind. And this mouse had no tail of his own either. (laughs) So, hmm. Maybe the cat got his tail as well. (laughs) Poor mouse. Um, Yeah. And during production, Don Bluth staged a demonstration of the difference between limited TV animation and full animation used in the film. And he had his staff stack up animation cells by his feet into two piles, one representing two minutes of the limited animation and the other two minutes of full animation. The TV pile reached only to Blue's shoelaces. The film pile went all the way up to his eyes, which is pretty impressive. Mm -hmm. It takes a lot more work, Mm -hmm. a lot more animation cells yeah and they don't do the biggest thing is the repeating um for like a lot Mm -hmm. of tv animation i mean now of course it's obviously done on the computer but when they were still hand drawing things like Mm -hmm. like in one second there might only be like four or five images and all the other space in between they would just keep duplicating the same image so 
But when you're doing the film, like every single frame has to be a completely new image. So yeah, I'm, yeah. I am not surprised at all by shoelaces to eyes, the difference between <laughs> <laughs> uh, that few minutes, yeah. Yeah, and you know, it's amazing where some of the people that started out on Don Bluth animation films would find themselves, such as Warren Hayes. He played the voice of an Irish singer mouse on the boat and later went to work with Pixar. Um, he worked with the, as the system administrator and system supporter on A Bug's Life, uh, the information systems manager in Toy Story 2, the information systems manager and lead of Finding Nemo, and the desktop and infrastructure Pixar studio team of Up. So he's been involved in a lot of animated features. Mm -hmm. So I thought that was kind of cool. When Fievel was running away from the cats during the Cossacks raid, his hat falls from his head and stands at the entrance of the snow tunnel. Uh, Fievel retrieves it in the last minute and right before one of the cats gets there. And, of course, this is reminiscent of something that Steven Spielberg uses in another Spielberg film. And what is that, Erica? <laughs> um, he uses that all over the place. <laughs> well, specifically with Indiana Jones. And that hat he always loses. Um, actually, it is kind of funny. But he always gets it back. Yeah, well, but the the biggest <laughs> thing is that in the Indiana Jones movies, we always see him get it back. In American Tale, it's really funny. In almost every single scene, Fievel loses it. But it's 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 actually a continuity error. Like, you never see him, like, finding it again. It's just magically oh. there the next scene. So <laughs> I actually kind of get a kick out of it watching how many times the hat is just gone. And then magically it comes <laughs> back after that. Like, oh, kids' movies and animation. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good point. Um, so let's see. Uh, the character Gussie Moshimer, a uh, German socialite with a speech impediment, which caused her to use the W sound in place of her R's and L's, reminding me of Princess Bride, uh, is voiced by Madeline Kahn. And her heritage, accent, and speech pattern was identical to Lily von Stupp. Um, which is her character in Blazing Saddles, mm -hmm. which is kind of funny. Mm -hmm. So, It was a very funny character, so I had no problem with her bringing it back. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So in designing the look of the film, Don Bluth worked with Amblin Entertainment, uh, of course being Steven Spielberg's film company. Uh, he decided to make a stylistic shift to a more modern style of animation uh, of the time and style similar to Disney animation from the 40s. However, one thing I really noticed about this film and the animation style is that the people in it seemed very realistic, which made it actually more believable in a way, even though it was a film about mice. <laughs> um, you had real places. You had real human beings in it. It was like, you know, it it reminded you of something of what the mice would be doing when the humans weren't looking mm -hmm. or something like that, you know? And it's like a thing of Toy Story, you know? It's like, you know, the toys would become alive when the humans weren't there. But, like, in this film, it was more like 
this is what's going on when the humans aren't around. And I, I really like that. And, oh, uh, Nehemiah Persoff. He was chosen to play Papa Moskowitz, and he had a similar role as Barbara Streisand's father in Yentl, which is another film about uh, Jews. So that's pretty cool. And then, of course, in this film, Dom DeLuise is in it. Uh, what is your... Just out of asking, what is your favorite song out of An American Tale? Oh, wow. Um, I like most of them. Uh, hmm. I don't know. I, I like them all. I don't know if I could pick a favorite. <laughs> See, I like Never Say Never. Mm-hmm. Um, that's actually one of my favorites. Mm-hmm. Um for a lot of people, it would be somewhere out there, but it's not my favorite song in the film. It's yeah. it's a good song, mm-hmm. and I appreciate it for what it is, but it's not my favorite mm-hmm. song. Yeah, I mean, it's fun, but it's very slow. So some of the more yeah. upbeat ones are just a little bit more fun. I would probably say the one at the beginning that all the mice sing on the way over, over on the ship. Um, like oh, the, yeah. one, the one with the Irish mouse who does the third passage. Yeah. I would say that was, I think, probably... That one because it's the funniest. Um, it shows the all these mice from all these like different ethnic groups and all these like very mm-hmm. different like life stories. And so Fievel is kind of seeing this and understanding why all these other mice are escaping, and it kind of puts you know why he is escaping as well into perspective. And it's mm-hmm. a fun song. Yeah. So yeah, that's true. <laughs> and then we get you know other voice actors such as Sid Caesar and Christopher Plummer, and. At first, when I was looking at my notes, I was like, oh, I didn't realize Christopher Plummer was in this. And then I think back and I'm like, yeah, he was in this. Mm -hmm. Uh, That was pretty interesting. And I I always have liked how in the film you have a giant cat, which is Dom DeLuise's character of Tiger. And then you have uh, Fievel and they become best friends. (laughs) (laughs) A cowardly lion cat befriends a tiny little mouse Mm. so that's what i really like about that for a child that's a fantastic contrast that they think is very funny Mm Hmm. yeah oh uh john finnegan do you know who that is other than his character in this show i'm not super familiar with him no okay because he won the role of warranty rat and he did it by reciting excerpts of Hamlet in the voice of a Brooklyn taxi driver. One of the things I really find interesting is how many different voice actors are in it, but mainly one thing that I really think of with Madeline Kahn and Christopher Plummer, they voiced several characters in Pixar films. Um, Kahn voiced... A gypsy as the gypsy moth in Bugs Life, um, Christopher Plummer, Charles Muntz in Up, uh, Kathy Cavandi, uh, which is the voice of Tanya in the sequel, uh, did voices in Finding Dory and uh, Cars 3, which I never really saw, so don't really know what that film is actually about. And then uh, it's also... It, 
reminds me like seven steps to Kevin Bacon mm-hmm. because all these actors are connected in some way to another um, film, mm-hmm. such as like John Cleese, the voice of Cat R. Wall in Five O Goes West, and it starred Khan's Bug Life uh, female co star Julia Louise Dreyfus in Planes. So. All these actors had connections with Pixar, mm-hmm. but essentially had connections with an American tale. <laughs> so uh, that means I there was a bunch really... of cool people in it. That's right, exactly. Um, and another thing is the score uh, was not done by Jerry Goldsmith; it was done by James Horner, and Don Bluth was already familiar with him as the composer's agent attempted to pressure Bluth into hiring Horner for The Secret of Nim, But Horner felt obligated to use Goldsmith's score, which, granted, Goldsmith did an amazing job with The Secret of Nim, And even though uh, Goldsmith provided Don Bluth's film uh, first, uh, with that orchestral score, with James Horner doing his own, with An American Tale, it brought him his first Academy Award nomination uh, along with Aliens that same year. (laughs) And as he had set that standard for action uh, music. But Horner's music was, like, really unique. And throughout so many of James Horner's films he has this unique style that he'll take with a film and this one he seemed to use a lot of fiddle and a lot of harp and a lot of uh violin and he utilized that same and it was that theme that was carried out through a lot of the music and it reminded some people of the music of Maurice Jarre's Dr. Zivago, which is interesting Mm -hmm. because it had a Russian tone Mm -hmm. uh, to that movie. Um, But I like how even when they reach New York, the style changes just a bit because he's in the big city Mm -hmm. and he is examining, you know, the, what types of sounds you would hear in the city or what type of music might be there and what did you think of some of the things of like the contrast between like where they had been and where they were at in Uh, new york i thought uh like when you like that first song i mentioned i can't think of the name of it right now when they're on the boat coming over and all the different mice from all the different countries are talking about their background like that sort of thing is kind of hard for a child to understand but i thought Mm -hmm. they did a really good job like in that particular song and then with the music itself like you just said when they got to new york it kind of shifts a little bit it's no longer mostly russian because that's where five was for the first few scenes they're now in new york and it new York is a cultural melting pot, even more mm-hmm. so then than now, because everybody yeah. was still coming then. There's a lot less people coming now. So, yeah, he's going to hear different noises, different peoples, different languages. Like, it's for a child, I thought they did a really good job of explaining what that would have been like during that time and all the different things they would have heard. Oh, yeah, definitely. And how 
overall, with An American Tale, it stands among James Horner's effective works that delved into like a sh- children's genre, but it, it eclipsed most of what he's produced for similar topics in other years. And it just, it really stood out uh, separate from a lot of other film scores. And this was for an animated feature. So mm-hmm. I really found that unique. Um, so some of the cues that I've chosen uh, are, um, well, to begin with, is the main title, The Cossack Cats, Give Me Your Tired, Your Poor, and The Storm. Now, James Horner really does an amazing job with this music. He places the music in different themes for the film, as well as placing the music within the, the singing songs. Erica, what do you think of these? Uh, I like them. Uh, the main title starts out with that violin part that you've mentioned and kind of morphs itself into, you know, somewhere out there and it, and then goes on to a lot of the other themes. It's just beautiful. Um, Cossack Cats. Um Cats are trying to eat you. That's exciting and scary, and that is that is exactly what Cossack Cats comes out across, is exciting and scary. Um, but I really, really liked Give Me Your Tired, Your Poor. Um, mm-hmm. And it took me a little while to realize why I liked it so much. Um, it's sad. It's very slow. And I think the thing that I like the most is that it, it actually doesn't have, like, a driving force in it. It's mm-hmm. it just sort of meanders from one theme to another, from one you know group of musicians to another. It's almost like a stream that's just sort of like deciding where it's going. And we're so used to music having a heartbeat and a tempo, and like always like racing to whatever the next change is, whatever the next key change is, like whatever is coming up. And this just kind of sat back and was like, "We'll get there whenever we all get there," <laughs> and that was it. And yeah. it was just like sad and beautiful, and I really really like that. Yeah, I I would have nothing to disagree with on that because <laughs> I really appreciate those. I listened to them last night too. So, so why don't we go ahead and play those?
So sadly, we've come down to another end of Soundtrack Alley. Um, I'd like to thank Alexander Shebel for composing Soundtrack Alley's theme music. Uh, you can find his work at xanderscores.com. Lastly today, I'll play The Marketplace, Reunited, and Fly Away End Credits. Uh, what do you think of these wonderful cues, Erica? Uh, they were fun, and I especially like the end credits. Um, a lot of times, beginning credits and end credits will kind of have snippets of like some of the main themes and main motifs throughout the movie kind of thrown mm-hmm. in. And this one is, is, is very much the same. It's got little sections of all the different music in it. Um, but the biggest difference is that even some of the sadder music in the end credits, it's happy. Mm-hmm. So like it, it like it feels happy and it was it was for me it was sort of like you know like you know you've survived watching this movie and all the horrible things that happen <laughs> but you got through it and you're okay and you know the family yeah. is together and they're going to be all right and they're going to move on and so even the sad stuff felt happy uh in the way that you know all those different you know different music motifs kind of moved in and out of each other so yeah it left you smiling at the end yeah exactly so, pe- where can people find you, Erica? Uh, yeah, the easiest place would be at my website, which is ericachristie.com, E-R-I-K-A-C-H-R-I-S-T-I-E.com. And there you can find me on, you know, Instagram and Twitter and my videos and all that stuff is all in one place. All right. And you can find me on Facebook, Twitter, at Soundtrack Alley, Stitcher, Google Podcast, Apple Podcast, Podbean, uh, email me at soundtrackalley at yahoo.com. Um, I have a merch store on Redbubble. Uh, people can check out the different stuff I have on there. And all those links will be in the show notes. Uh, so until next time, for part two of the Don Bluth uh, favorite episode or favorite movies. <laughs> Don Bluth extravaganza. Um, exactly. It's a Don Bluth ex- film extravaganza. Uh, I hope you all have a pleasant evening and happy listening.
Thank you for listening to Soundtrack Alley, the podcast. I hope you take the time to review my podcast on iTunes or even listen to it on Podbean. With your review, it helps me get noticed on iTunes. Thank you so much. Have a good day.